Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who make monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. The United States has served as both an object of fascination and enmity in Russia over the 20th century. Though anti-Americanism was present in Soviet propaganda after 1917, it reached a fever pitch with the Cold War. How did the Soviet cultural and propaganda apparatus imagine America? What efforts did the Soviet state take to control information about the United States in the post-war landscape? My guest, Rosa Magnus Dotur, examines the USSR's enemy number one, from Stalin's anti-American campaign to Khrushchev's policy of peaceful coexistence, to show the ebbs and flows of America's image in the Soviet Union. Rosa Magnus Dotter is an associate professor of history at Aarhus University in Denmark, specializing in propaganda and U.S.-Russia relations during the Cold War. She's the author of Enemy Number One, the United States of America in Soviet Ideology and Propaganda, 1945 to 1959, published by Oxford University Press. I provided a partial transcript of this interview. It'll be up on the post of this on the podcast website. Here is Rosa Magnus Dutur. <laughs> So your book, Enemy Number One, The United States of America and Soviet Ideology and Propaganda, 1945 to 1959, explores the Soviet view of America during the early years of the Cold War, first, you know, almost 15 years or so. So before we start getting into that period, I'd like to start by just having you talk about how was America viewed in Russia and in the Soviet Union before 1945? Yeah, yeah, that's actually quite important because the view of the United States in the post-war Soviet Union relied to a great extent on earlier images of the United States. So um, in the book, I kind of review the images that we see from the late 19th century, starting with some of the literary accounts, uh, uh, Karolienko, and then, of course, you know, the big ones like uh, Gorky and Blok, Mandelstam, Markovsky, Ilf, and Petrov, obviously, uh, these uh, authors who, many of them, visited the United States, uh, saw it, wrote travelogues that became really classics in the Soviet Union. And uh, a lot of the later images relied to a great extent on the early literary accounts. And then, of course, we had political accounts. the Bolsheviks also looked to the United States as a positive model in terms of technological advancement and even prosperity. 
uh, it's uh, quite well known, of course, the the very positive view of uh, Fordism or Taylorism, uh, looking at uh, production. And uh, uh, so it was not all negative at all, like it was in the in the post-war period to a great extent, like we can, yeah, we can talk about that later. But uh, so so there were there was this positive image before the war, but there was of course also a negative image. Like it, I mean, social and racial issues in the United States were criticized also quite openly. So, uh, but but the overwhelming view for almost yeah about fifty years up until the Second World War was that the United States was a technological uh, model for the Soviet Union. And then, of course, the Second World War plays a major role in terms of uh, images. Um, the wartime alliance had a great impact on uh, the Soviet perception of the United States. Uh, the influence of Lend-Lease, you know, tanks and jeeps, trucks, guns, foods. Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, spam or uh, these American <laughs> products that entered the Soviet Union during the Second World War and also popular culture, jazz, obviously, is very famous. And uh, the, this particular image, like the wartime alliance when uh, the United States and the Soviet Union were cooperating uh, for the greater good, uh, that ends up playing a big role in the later images of the United States. And that's kind of one of the points that I make in the book is that the importance of the wartime alliance and how what role that plays in later uh, views of the American enemy. Now, the image of uh, the of America in the Soviet Union, of course, turns more hostile after 1945. It, it kind of emphasizes more of the negative things. So what were some of the elements of, of anti-Americanism in the final Stalin years? In the in the first chapter of the book, I kind of go over the anti-American campaign. It was kind of interesting to me. Like we know, we all know about uh, the sort of anti-Westernism and the anti-cosmopolitan campaign, but there was also a very clearly top-down, uh, designed anti-American campaign. Like it came uh, from the sort of top layers in the Soviet uh, bureaucracy and really uh, emphasized sort of how anti-Americanism should be present in all layers of society. Like we know maybe the most about the media. So that so I highlighted in the book, I highlighted, for example, the uh, anti-Americanism in the theater world and in films and then uh, in literature, where we also see some of the old classics being reused because they fit perfectly with the Stalinist anti-American uh, Cold War agenda, and also new works that are designed to suit those uh, purposes in the in the late uh, Stalin era. And it was really interesting to me, like how how detailed the instructions were, and also just the extent of the paranoia. I mean, this is what obviously is a. I mean, this is in a totalitarian society there at the. Uh, in the late 1940s under high Stalinism. And then we have works that had been considered perfectly sort of 
perfectly good anti-American <laughs> Soviet works were all of a sudden not anti-American enough. And that was really interesting to me, like how uh, authors who had thought they were sort of catering to the needs of the Soviet cultural bureaucracy were all of a sudden uh, uh, sort of defending their choices and trying to explain how in reality they, how, how, how anti-American they were in reality. Uh, so it was was the anti-American campaign part of the general anti-cosmopolitanism campaign, or was it a do you did you see it as a do you see it as a separate trajectory coming out of the the end of the war? It's a little bit difficult for me to answer that directly because it it is a part of the anti-cosmopolitan campaign. But when the what in the way that I presented the way that. I sort of see these images of the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, it fits into a sort of an overall narrative of Soviet-American relations or Soviet perceptions of the United States. So, so, so I feel like the anti-American campaign, uh, because of all these efforts that were made in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War to have sort of cultural relations in place, uh, which were then completely, uh, you know, they, they came to nothing. And uh, with the anti-American campaign, uh, it was completely impossible to have any kind of uh, official uh, cultural relations between the two countries. So, so it, it definitely is a part of a larger uh, campaign, but at the same time, it has its own agenda and it fits into uh, like I said this narrative of uh, Soviet perceptions of the United States in general and so how did they what did they perceive about it what were some of the negative qualities that they emphasized or exaggerated in the anti-american campaign it was a very very strong focus on social and racial issues in the United States uh, evil capitalists obviously uh, and the, the sort of warmongers of uh, American culture. And one of the things that uh, maybe is uh, interesting is that in sort of stark opposition to what most people, especially I think Americans, uh, perceived of the Soviet Union as sort of the Russians, the evil Russians during this period of the Cold War. But the Russian uh, or the Soviet image of the United States was more nuanced. It had these uh, evil uh, Americans, which were the capitalists and the warmongers, and then it had the good Americans. It uh, promoted this image of the dual America and uh, sort of made ordinary Americans into victims of these uh, evil uh, of these evil Americans. So that was kind of interesting that how this. Uh, it was a bit nuanced, very anti-American, but it was still nuanced because they were, you know, the, the progressive Americans, the good Americans. I found this really interesting, too, that they made this distinction between, you know, the evil and the ordinary oppressed Americans and so much so it's kind of a, a second America. So what were the qualities about second America that made it, you know, much more friendly or even fit within Soviet ideology? I think, I mean, it is sort of this view of the 
of it is just the whole Marxist worldview, how they analyze these uh, relate, how they analyze the society in terms of class conflict. So, the the sort of the second America is the America that is just awaiting to have its own revolution, so that they can, you know, uh, take over and uh, yeah, something something to that extent, yeah. A big part of this, and you've already briefly mentioned that, but I want you to give us more detail, is that, you know, American racism and, and violence against African-Americans, you know, it has a really important place in, in Soviet views of America. I mean, even from the 1920s up up until into the, the Cold War, of course. So how did um, Soviet attention to black Americans figure into their anti-American propaganda? Yeah, that was really, it was really clear that works uh, written by American authors that were critical of the way African Americans were treated in the United States or, you know, showed, I mean, it didn't have to be literary works. It could be, you know, any kind of uh, social science uh, related research that showed the sufferings of African Americans in general in the in the United States was a really favored genre in the pre-war period and also uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War. And they really relied on uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, Harriet Beecher Stowe was the work that was referred to. It was read, it was uh, available in a large print run and in libraries all over. And it became sort of the standard reference point for uh, for, for educating the Soviet people about the situation of African Americans in the in the United States, when Stalin dies and the Soviet American cultural relations are revived in the mid nineteen fifties, then they actually uh, are scolded for uh, relying too much on outdated views of uh, you know the history of the situation of African Americans had changed quite radically in the mid 1950s from I mean definitely from how it was presented in uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin but also just from before the Second World War so so, so th this is one example maybe of how these you know early images are repeated uh, sometimes for decades and not updated so in the end, the knowledge is completely outdated and useless. And it was actually Paul Robeson, uh, a very famous, obviously, African-American activist and friend of the Soviet Union, who sort of told them, you know, took them, took, took, took them aside and said, you need to stop doing this. This is embarrassing. <laughs> What's interesting in, in this sense of you know the the this again back to this notion of a second america of which african americans play a many a big role because they're considered the most oppressed within ordinary america but you also have the soviet union using a lot of you know authors that they see as friendly like jack london or uh i was surprised to see walt whitman you've mentioned uh, uncle tom's cabin what are some of the other uh novelists or or other depictions of america that they incorporated into their views. People like John Steinbeck were definitely uh, greatly valued uh, for his progressive views, although that turned out to uh, sort of, uh, yeah, 
in the in the post-war period, he was a bit more problematic for the Soviet propaganda purposes than his early 1930s work had uh, been, uh, especially as I talk about uh, his Russian journal, which he wrote after visiting the Soviet Union in, in the post-war period in 1947. Uh, but yeah, definitely these uh, authors that were seen as progressive, both in the United States, but especially in the in the Soviet Union, they were the they they got the green light for translation and publication in the Soviet Union. The United States tries to counter a lot of the Soviet internal propaganda uh, with uh, their the publication of a magazine in Russian called America, and of course Voice of American Radio, which kind of tried to counter the negative picture of the United States, and of course the negative picture of the American system to Soviet people. So, how did the Soviet government respond to these efforts by the United States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, that was uh, really interesting because we, I think uh, almost everyone knows about these efforts of the United States government. I mean, the uh, publication of America and then later the broadcasts of the Voice of America. But I was really trying to find out how they were received in the Soviet Union. And America is interesting because it was a legal publication. It's published uh, you know, it it comes out of a bilateral agreement. So the Americans are publishing this journal America and the Soviet Union, and the Soviets are publishing a similar journal, the USSR, in uh, in the United States. So they start uh, publishing in 1946, and uh, the Soviets are, you know, this is before the anti-American campaign has really uh, started as it did in 1947, and they're kind of open to it, allow it to increase uh, its uh, publication. Yeah, it started, it was published uh, from 1945, and it was in 1946 that they increased the uh, run-up to 50,000 copies. But then very soon after, they start to limit access to this legal publication. And they uh, wanted to, uh, you know, Agitprop wanted to limit subscription to patriotic workers of the party and Soviet organizations. And it was, it ended up becoming a very privileged reading for the most, uh, for the most loyal Soviet cultural and political bureaucrats. And I mean, parts of them were distributed by subscription and then other parts uh, were supposed to be on sale uh, in uh, these uh, kiosks uh, that were, uh, it was Mieskniga uh, that uh, distributed the journal and then Sayus Pechat was supposed to be selling it, and uh, they uh, made it very difficult for people to access these uh, copies that were supposed to be on sale. I think that they had kiosks in only three cities in all of the Soviet Union, and American embassy workers actually went, you know, around in Moscow and tried to find the journal on sale, and they just didn't. Uh, they weren't able to. To find it, and it was there were interesting discussions because internal discussions in the Soviet cultural bureaucracy. Because then they become frustrated that the journal isn't selling, <laughs> and sort of sort of claim, you know, no American organization would be satisfied with the returns, you know, of uh, with the sales of a magazine. But uh, at the same time, they are making everything. <laughs> 
making it very difficult for people to actually buy the buy the journal. And they ended up cancelling uh, the publication in 1952. And then uh, it was uh, later, uh, they, they started to republish it in 1956. So it is really this this, uh, the anti-American campaign really ruins the possibility for America to be to be published there, and and the Voice of America is a bit different because it's uh, of course not uh, legal. It's not something that is agreed upon between the two countries, and uh, the way that I sort of approach uh, this the Soviet uh, view of the United States is. With a with a with a radio broadcast, the Voice of America radio broadcast is, of course, the fact that they started to jam it. I mean, that is just so telling of how concerned Soviet authorities were. I mean, first they do everything in their power to limit the distribution of uh, the legal journal America, and then they uh, just just over a year after Voice of America started broadcasting, they start. To jam it. So they are really trying to control the availability of information about the United States of America in the Soviet Union. So just these reactions to to this uh, these American efforts are very telling uh, to me. Do you have any sense of the people who manage to read these, you know, America or listen to Voice in America? Does there any sense of what the public reception of them were? Yeah, I was really interested in trying to get at this. And uh, I found, uh, I, I read a bunch of uh, records from the Procuratura uh, review files of people who had been convicted for anti-Soviet crimes under Article 5810 of the Soviet Criminal Code. And uh, I was able to find people who had allegedly read uh, the journal or listened to the Voice of America broadcasts. These files are can be difficult to, to use, but uh, in any case, just the fact that these actions, reading or listening, were noted as crimes uh, in the in these files that somebody had, you know, took that to be this is a reason to put somebody in in prison. That again, to me, is just very telling of the fears of the Soviet uh, state. And the, I mean, the, the utterances that were recorded in these files, they are about, you know, people claiming to have read something in America or uh, listened to uh, a program and, you know, sort of doubting the truth that, about the United States that they were hearing in the Soviet media because they had had this alternative view from these mediums. So, so I did see, and 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 they, the comments uh, that were noted in these files, they do sort of reveal that the Soviet fear uh, was then, uh, if if these, you know, utterances are uh, correct, then the fears were justified because people were taking the, taking information from these media to heart. Um, for sure, and and uh, starting to doubt their own realities and comparing uh, the, yeah, comparing their reality to what they were hearing in these broadcasts. Um, do you get a sense of of how because it, it's on the one hand it's it's somewhat 
baffling because on the one hand I could because of the how everyone knows in the Soviet Union how controlled the media space is so when you hear something from the outside you know it, it adds to that suspicion you have of the media you're getting from the state but at the same time there's no you know patriotism and anti-americanism is at the same time a very real thing so at the, I also wonder if some of this some of the reception was also quite negative as well Absolutely. And I, I, I say that, you know, repeatedly in the book, just to make sure, like, just because some people were interested in the United States, it doesn't always mean that they were not loyal to the Soviet state. And it definitely doesn't mean, as we well know, I mean, a lot of people uh, were indeed anti-American. And I do have these, uh, you know, letters that concerned Soviet citizens were writing to the Soviet authorities about the about America, for example, like, you know, the, this one man who is really concerned about what he's reading and how this can be true and how can you allow this to be distributed in the country. And for sure, uh, people were sometimes, uh, you know, offering sort of their evaluation and assistance in terms of sort of showing how dangerous this uh, propaganda could be in, in Soviet society. So, so it is, I mean, the, I, I definitely do not mean to uh, suggest that this was, uh, you know, telling of all of Soviet society, but it, but it is telling, of course, that the Soviet state was so concerned. That, that, is, that is, to me, very clear. Like, they, they uh, limit distribution, they jam the broadcasts, and then they also, I mean, at least they blame people for having read or listened to these uh, to these uh, mediums and use that against them. You're absolutely right to emphasize it, it that it's really telling uh, about what the regime is afraid of or what they're concerned or anxious about. And, and that's one of the things that, that always kind of strikes me uh, about these examples like the ones that you give is that they devote so many resources into, you know, trying to prevent this, you know, sense of infection that is, it's really extraordinary. The, the institutional apparatus that they create just to keep out, you know, uh, a magazine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That a, a mind, only a very small minority of citizens is actually consuming, right? And, and at the same time, there's a, an equally big institutional structure in place to sort of provide for the uh, printing and distribution of the same, right. <laughs> same journal. That is to be also really, really fascinating. And I mean, you're getting to a point that is sort of in the in the whole book because it goes from the late Stalin period and then to the Khrushchev period. Is and that is to me like they invested so many resources in uh, controlling perceptions of the United States and then trying to, as I say, quote unquote, tell the truth about the Soviet Union to Americans and stuff like that. But at the, and they, they get an enormous amount of feedback, uh, especially in the mid 1950s from well-meaning individuals, individuals who want to sort of help them be better at presenting the Soviet side of the story. So, I mean, I have examples of focus groups of American, you know, well-meaning, progressive, of course, Americans who are reading the Soviet glossy journal in the United States and are telling them, like, this is 
not good. Like you need to have colorful pictures of everyday life in the Soviet Union. Nobody's interested in tractors anymore, or, you know, the technological advancements. So really focus groups and uh, people who are uh, telling them exactly what they need to be doing differently, but nothing changes. That is to me one of the most fascinating things about this is that they just, if they, they knew it all, like the propaganda state had better information than I had ever imagined, but they can't sort of make things happen. Nothing changes. It yeah. still remains this very crude, uh, you know, elementary propaganda shtick, it seems. Yeah. 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 So, you know, during this, before we move on to it, to after Stalin, um, one of the things I found really interesting is that you do still have some, you know, limited cultural exchange. Uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union in the in the early late forties and early nineteen fifties. So, what what role did these these cultural exchanges play? Because, on the other hand, they're this again they they bring up this problem where you know you allow Soviet citizens to meet Americans. It's and then but you have to highly control the situation and pour a bunch of resources into mes- messaging and controlling the message. So, what was talk about these cultural exchanges and and what, how they factored into this anti-American, you know, heightened anti-American period. I struggled with the term cultural exchanges quite a bit in, in recounting this story. So I actually make an effort in the book to talk about, in the Stalin period, I talk about cultural encounters between Soviet and American citizens. And they were, of course, very limited, like you're saying, and it was really kind of a full-blown propaganda war. And then, uh, just to give a bit of an overview of the period, then in 1955, the Soviet organizations are talking about a revival of cultural relations. And then as of 1958, I talk about cultural exchanges, because that's when we have the official agreement, the Sarubin-Lacy agreement, and we can talk about official cultural exchanges in terms of, you know, scientific technology, you know, that's when student exchanges, academic exchanges and everything starts. So, so, but, but you're absolutely right. Like in the, in the late Stalin period, the very limited cultural encounters, they have a huge uh, infrastructure in place, uh, but very, they're, they're uh, accepting very few visitors. I think I have in the book that in 1946, uh, Vox uh, had something like um, uh, uh, 19 American groups registered with a total of 57 visitors. So in the in this and, and they sent very few delegations to the United States. There were you know a couple of writers in 1946 and uh, again uh, in 19 uh, yeah 1945 I think in 1946 and uh, so 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 that so there's really uh, the whole thing is effectively just uh, paralyzed. And the very few who do come, like John Steinbeck with uh, photographer Robert Kaffa in 1947, are, of course, uh, you know, they, they are under surveillance the whole time. Like they're, I mean, the Sputniks and everyone involved is sort of informing on them. And it was one thing that was telling, though, if in a, a Russian journal by, by John Steinbeck is also that when they arrive in Moscow, and I mean, they've been invited, and this is, of course, a big deal for the Soviets, but nobody really knows who's responsible for them. Is it Vox or is it Intourist? And I mean, all these kinds of, you know, chaotic <laughs> instances that sort of indicate, again, like, yeah, everything is, 
there's a there's this huge structure, but uh, it's not really really working. The organizations have a very difficult time coordinating even the very very few uh, encounters that took place in the late uh, Stalin period. Do you do you think uh, that in the latter years of the Stalin period they were effective in both presenting an anti-American propaganda? and preventing, say, American influence? Because, you know, you talk about, on the one hand, it's a very top-down system where, you know, how America is framed is sent from above down below. But at the same time, as you're talking, it also sounds like a very chaotic system. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm curious as to your evaluation of how well all of this worked. My evaluation is that it didn't really work very well. Like I am sometimes just surprised that that it worked at all in terms of how 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 chaotic it seems. And like I said, like sometimes I'm really I was really fascinated by the amount of information. Like that's actually a bit later. Like that's not in the Stalin period about the amount of information they get and they don't respond to. But I also remember uh, talking to a Soviet man. Like yeah, he was uh, he was working at the American desk at Vox uh, in the 1940s, and uh, so so I was very fortunate to to actually get to talk to him. And he said it, it was a I mean a very very slow period. Like they did nothing. They just pushed paper, you know, all day long, and that was also kind of indicative because also during this period, the even the people who you know you would assume are reading something like America and they have access to you know the limited available American uh, culture in the Soviet Union, they were completely out of the loop during these years. That's what sort of comes out of the revival in 1955, when it's like sort of people sort of like, okay, we can finally now start, you know, trying to understand the United States again. And and uh, even, I mean, even if it was their job, like they were supposed to be, you know, or yeah, their position. Yeah. So... Uh, Stalin dies, of course, in 1953. Khrushchev denounces him in 1956 in his famous speech at the 20th Party Congress. How did the American, the image of American change after Stalin's death? And it actually, it softens quite considerably. And uh, uh, I mean, the biggest change in Soviet-American cultural relations uh, is actually 1955. It's before the secret speech, and that's uh, that is the year when it invokes uh, the they re- they write reports where they really sort of celebrate the fi- that finally now we are able to have a dialogue. I mean the the reports from the Soviet embassy in Washington has had also been you know to the effect that they were they were not able to do anything like to reach out or have any kind of contacts there in the late Stalin period. And I think as with so many other things in Soviet society, like the effects of Stalin's death are also quite immediate in the cultural bureaucracy. So 1955 is the year when uh, we have, I mean, delegations, really high profile delegations going back and forth between the countries. There's an agricultural delegation, there's a journalistic delegation, and there's um, artists uh, pouring into the Soviet Union uh, in numbers that, you know, had been unimaginable just uh, two years earlier. Porti and Bess comes on tour 
1955. That's a really interesting uh, episode, obviously, with, uh, with the racial aspects of the musical and the history and the history there. Were there American de- delegations to the, the World Youth Festival in 57? There were just over a hundred uh, Americans. So it was a very small delegation, considering, I mean, the West German was over 3,000, if I remember correctly. And yeah, that was a big moment of, of this kind of opening for international internationals coming to the Soviet Union. Definitely. And, but the American uh, government took a very strong stance against it and, as, and the youth festivals in general. And I think the Soviet, uh, the Soviet organizers suspected the majority of the participants to be CIA agents. Mm, I see. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one of the, uh, the big moments, well, there's two big highlights of the kind of exchange of uh, between the, the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War and one of the high points of the rhetorical Cold War. And that is, of course, the kitchen debate between Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon. And of course, Khrushchev's visit to the United States was the first Soviet leader to visit the United States. So talk about these two moments and their significance and and how this idea of peaceful coexistence was imagined. Uh, Maybe I'll start with a point about peaceful coexistence, because that becomes such a big part of Khrushchev's sort of uh, narrative. And I, I mean, maybe reconciliation is too strong of a word, but it's still, I mean, his uh, claim as of 1955, as of the Geneva summit, is uh, precisely to go back to the Second World War and say, look, we have done this before and we can do it again. We can cooperate and we should be able to peacefully coexist. It's obviously also a part of the strategy to distance himself from Stalin and to align himself with Lenin, who would uh, come up with a, with a term uh, with the concept of peaceful coexistence. But Khrushchev very clearly applies it now to the superpower uh, structure and uh, in particular uses the narrative of the Second World War. And that is to me interesting because um, I I start the book with a meeting on the Elbe. Like that's really when there's this moment of optimism. The world is about, the war is almost over and we are going to be looking at brighter times. We all know that that didn't happen. But uh, these, uh, uh, the veterans of the meeting on the Elbe, they actually uh, stayed in touch as much as they could. And that's one more uh, example of how important the year 1955 was because it was the first time that they actually managed to meet and have reunions. Uh, they wanted to meet in the Soviet Union that was sorry they wanted to meet in in uh, Washington uh, the, the American organization invited the Soviet veterans to come but uh, they uh, oppo- they didn't want to be fingerprinted as was required so the but the American uh, veterans uh, came and visited the Soviet Union and this the, they became important like the meeting on the Elbe uh, was something that uh, was celebrated and in Soviet culture, and Khrushchev goes back to this. And what I saw then, especially in relations to the to Khrushchev's visit to the uh, United States in 1959, uh, is when people wrote to him. I've had these uh, letters from citizens on the occasion of uh, Khrushchev's trip to the United States, 
is that they embrace the opportunity to finally include the American ally in their recollection and narrative of the Great Patriotic War. It had com been completely silenced, obviously. It was not a part of uh, any type of uh, memory of the Second World War, and that, that became really important. So, so Khrushchev, I mean, it was a, it was a clever way of uh, both sort of extending this image of the Soviet Union as a peaceful uh, superpower. It's a part of the whole peace campaign. So when the delegations start going to the United States in the mid-1950s, they all, they all say, like, we don't want another war. We have suffered enough. We, we have, you know, nobody. And, and then they come back home and say, the Americans also don't want another war. We are all, you know, peaceful and we should be able to, to peacefully coexist. So that's really something that is important. And, and the letters that uh, Soviet people wrote in 1959, they also touch upon the, uh, the famous... Uh, American exhibit in Sokolniki, where the kitchen debate uh, took place, and it is—it was really interesting to see, like, how, in in what detail people actually engaged with the, with the display, like what with this American society that was on display uh, for weeks in in Moscow, and the Soviet media was also—I mean, it it covered it. I mean, obviously, with uh, with explanations of how you know <laughs> how how to read uh, the the exhibit, but it really had an impact, and um, and the kitchen debate itself was obviously this uh, spontaneous uh, discussion where uh, Khrushchev ended up sort of, I mean, the, it, the kitchen debate puts the the issue of convenience and uh, commercialism uh, on the table. I mean that's when uh, it's clear that the Cold War is not just about the space race. It's also going to be about about uh, convenience and the uh, and the uh, yeah commercial culture. And and how is his how is his uh, trip to the United States treated? Because I'm always I was always fascinated with this, particularly because I I went to read that uh, he really wanted to visit Disneyland and the Americans uh, prevented him. So yeah. I always yeah. felt that was kind of sad for Khrushchev. But I uh, know. <laughs> and, uh, what was that visit I, like? <laughs> yeah, the Disneyland uh, incident. I think. Uh, the fire department in Los Angeles uh, said they couldn't uh, secure him. Uh, they couldn't provide the security needed for his visit. But of course, uh, that was used back in the Soviet Union to show that you know he could also he was also not allowed to go everywhere he wanted. You know <laughs> that uh, there was also a limited you know freedom of movement and and stuff like that. So so um, I I mean Eisenhower had been reluctant, but uh, sort of made sure yeah that uh, to greet him well when when he and uh, Nina Khrushcheva came to the United States so they were treated quite well they traveled very broadly uh, obviously Khrushchev had to go and check out uh, visit his uh, corn buddy in Iowa <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and uh, I mean it did have a have a huge impact uh, on both sides the Soviet media at the same time uh, is sort of at home celebrating the advances advancement of Soviet 
technology and culture. It has a brand new icebreaker with the name Lenin on the front page, but then maybe on page two or three of Prauta, then they have Khrushchev in America, and then he's then he's the icebreaker of the Cold War. So they use these images, uh, and then again, like put him always in the sort of, uh, you know, he's Lenin's, uh, he's in the shadow of Lenin uh, as an icebreaker now of the Cold War. So it was really, I think, seen as an opportunity to show that he is there to preach peaceful coexistence. He's there to uh, remind everyone that the they had been friends and allies uh, not that long ago. And uh, it seems to be working <laughs> in 1959. There is a sense of optimism in the air. But that's, of course, uh, that uh, is a very short-lived optimism. Uh, yeah, first with the downing of the U-2 spy plane in 1960. And then obviously we have the Cuban Missile Crisis and it's all over. <laughs> um. And and finally, you know, America has served as a as both an object of fascination and enmity in Russia over the twentieth century, and in many respects, this continues today. Um, what what do you see are the legacies of the Soviet image of the United States from the Cold War period? Do you see elements of it in in Russian anti-Americanism? You know, even after the 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 collapse of this brief moment of good re decent relations and in specifically after the collapse of the Soviet Union yeah i i have uh in the epilogue i sort of note i noted when i was uh writing the book and i had been following obviously russian american relations and i was really really fascinating when uh actually not in terms of anti-americanism it was during the um actual I guess uh, the thaw, like the second thaw, which was labeled a reset in the Obama uh, administration, uh, then we actually have exactly the same kind of narrative that Khrushchev used. I mean, this is a, this is a, I mean, I mean, obviously after a rather cold period in Russian-American relations, we have Obama and Medvedev attempting to smooth things over and uh, uh, at, at, uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton are advocating for the reset of Russian-American relations and they use exactly the same rhetoric and they even go as far as celebrating the spirit of the Elbe going back to sort of you know the second world war and it became uh, sort of obvious to me that uh, uh, this is still the moment that uh, leaders will referred to in speeches when they want to ha make great claims about the potential for cooperation and uh, yeah peaceful coexistence to to be sure yeah and then uh, at the same time uh, there was even a, uh, a film uh, that was about the meeting on the Elbe uh, just a couple of years ago and that was criticized for being too too positive in its illustrations of the relationship. So it's always, it's never sort of, uh, it, 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 we see sort of the repeated themes of uh, having, yeah, uh, the Americans are the bad guys and, or, or that it, it cannot go too far. <laughs> any, kind of, uh, any kind of fascination with uh, America should stay within certain limits for sure. That's also 
something that you see in in contemporary Russian anti-Americanism. But just as it was even during the Stalin era, uh, there is, you know, anti-Americanism is only one part of the story also in contemporary Russia. There's also obviously fascination with the, with the United States. Yeah. That was Rosa Magnus Dottur, an associate professor of history at Aarhus University in Denmark, specializing in propaganda and U.S.-Russian relations during the Cold War. She's the author of Enemy Number One, The United States of America in Soviet Ideology and Propaganda, 1945 to 1959, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, SRB Podcast, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.